Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Job Hunter podcast with your host Tim French. This week is another slightly international edition as we are heading to Switzerland by way of Bonnie, Scotland to talk all things physics-y. If I were to ask you what the answer was to the meaning of life, the universe and everything, you would of course say the number 42, or so supposed by Douglas Adams in his excellent novel The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. However, there are a select bunch of people looking a little closer to home to find out more about how our universe was born and what it means for us. So you all know what to do by now. Sit back, relax and prepare yourself as we head into the subatomic collision that is this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to the Job Hunter podcast. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Adam Rennie to the Job Hunter podcast. Adam is part of a team trying to understand what happened at the formation of our universe. Adam, why don't you kick us off uh, by telling our listeners a bit more about what exactly you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm currently out in Geneva uh, and I kind of work at this uh, lab called CERN. Um, And yeah, as you said, Tim, it's kind of um, looking to understand what goes on in the, the most kind of extreme conditions imaginable in the universe. And so there are kind of, um, there's, a, there's a massive machine out here that is our experiment. It's the largest experiment that was, has ever been constructed. Uh, so it's this 27 kilometer ring and we send these uh, subatomic particles uh, around it, uh, uh, you know, into 99.99999% of the, the speed of light and we collide them and you get these huge energies and we want to basically just see what happens um, and try and understand what's going on there. So we, we bring them into collision at, at four different points around uh, that ring. Uh, there are four different kind of detectors there. I work on one of them, which is called the Atlas Experiment. Um, and I, I mean, these things, although we're looking at, at you know, these tiny subatomic uh, particles, these are massive machines. Like I say, the ring is 27 kilometers around the experiment. My detector is... Uh, it weighs about 7,000 tons, and it's about half the size of, of Notre Dame Cathedral. So it's, it's this gargantuan kind of effort. And there are thousands of people, you know, thousands and thousands of scientists working on this. So it really is this, this huge kind of endeavor. Um, and I get to be just kind of a, a small part of that, trying to understand one small piece of, of the kind of big big picture. So how exactly do you detect these particles? I imagine they're, you know atomic scale, subatomic scale. So they're probably quite hard to get them to line up in that essence. How do you control them so that you ensure they, they do hit each other and get detected? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a really interesting question actually, because it's, I mean, it's a really difficult thing to do. Like you say, these are, um, you know, tiny, infinitesimally small uh, particles and, and you're accelerating them to, to these huge energies. And, and so what you have is um, you have sort of basically two fields to control them. So you use an electric field to accelerate uh, the particles up to these uh, really high speeds and high energies to collide them. And as they're going around the ring, you use these really powerful magnets to, uh, to bend them around. Um, and I mean, even just the magnets, I mean, it's, the whole thing is this huge technological challenge. Um, you know, the magnets have to be cooled to, uh, to colder than, than outer space. You know, the, the, the magnets at the LHC are colder than, than it is in outer space. Um, you know, so there are technolo- technological challenges around every corner. And, um, really, these detectors act almost as like a, a big digital camera. Um, it just wants to, to kind of take a snapshot um, 
of these collisions. And you get all of these kind of signals. These detectors are kind of in different layers that do different things uh, to try and identify different characteristics of, of the particles that are coming out of there. And you want to try and basically use all the information that you're gathering in these detectors and the various layers of them to try and form your best uh, picture of what, what happened. And I mean, we actually can, uh, you know, we generate um, sort of digital images. So you can actually see that as a digital image and see kind of the particles flying out in, in these detectors. But it, I mean, it's a huge uh, technical challenge. You know, we, I, I sort of uh, spend most of my time analyzing the data that, that comes out of, um, of these detectors. But by the time it's at me, you know, there's been thousands and thousands of people that have contributed to the whole process up to the point where I sit on my computer and, and you know, make some, some graphs of what's going on. So what specifically are you trying to learn? What are you trying to get out of these experiments? Well, um, well so broadly speaking, um, ATLAS, which is the experiment that I work on, is, is one of two what we call general purpose experiments. And so it, it's looking at all different uh, aspects of these collisions. And, and really, it's you're trying to understand the very most fundamental uh, science that there is in the universe. And so what particle physics is, really, is this study of these fundamental particles that make up everything in the universe and the forces that, that sort of govern how they all interact. And, um, you know, in some sense, that is what leads to everything, you know, that exists in the universe. Um, so it really is the most kind of fundamental understanding. And we try the sort of the higher energy um, that you go at these colliders, you see these more and more kind of extreme uh, events. And it's sort of analogous to going further and further back in the history of the universe to where you've had these really high energy densities. And that's why we often talk about, you know, looking at or trying to look at the conditions that would have existed around the Big Bang is because you had these, these really high energies. Um, and, you know, Einstein's um, equation that everyone knows, that E equals MT squared, you know, basically tells you that you can swap mass and energy. Um, and so basically what we achieve in, in, in going into higher and higher energies is that it, we almost have a higher budget for creating heavier particles. And it tends to be the heavier particles that we don't really understand so well uh, just, just now. Um, and these are these fundamental particles. So uh, fundamental in the sense that they can't be broken down in, into anything else as far as we, we can tell. Um, and so, yeah, so, so you know, your, your energy at these colliders is almost like the budget that you have for creating uh, particles. So the higher energy you have, then uh, the kind of heavier particles you can make and, and more of them as well. And these are the ones that we don't really understand very well. So we're trying to understand them and, and how they sort of relate to the, to the forces that exist in the universe. Uh, so like you said, this seems to be fundamental work, very important, important work, but why do you think CERN is, is so important um, that, you know, that we need to do these experiments? I mean, I think it's I think it's important in in its own right. I mean, doing doing this kind of fundamental science, I think, is important. I mean, I think I think it's part of what we've always kind of done as a civilization. You know, it's it's it really is curiosity driven um, kind of science. It's, it's trying to understand the most fundamental features of the universe. But that's not to say that it's the only thing that comes out of a place like CERN. You know, like I say, when you have you know, these collaborations, these experiments are thousands and thousands of people um, and all working. It really is this kind of uh, interplay between so many different fields. Um, 
you know, maybe I'm doing some of the sort of experimental physics and looking at this data, but, you know, like I say, you know, someone has to build, you have to have engineers that build these tunnels to put the machine in. You have to have engineers that are going to build the machine itself. There's armies of technicians that start, uh, you know, keeping the whole thing running the whole time. You have to work out how to handle all of the data. I mean, that in itself is a huge challenge. All, all of these sort of challenges to get to the point where you're able to uh, start looking into the physics, you're solving so many problems along the way that, I mean, that you have natural spinoffs. I mean, I, I, it's actually one of the really cool things about um, my office uh, at CERN. So uh, although I'm not there quite so much at the moment, um, the, so I'm at the University of Glasgow, and um, the Glasgow office at CERN is in the same corridor where uh, Tim Berners-Lee was when he uh, kind of came up with the World Wide Web, which was another thing that came out of, out of CERN. So, you know, quite often on my way to uh, to the office, I have to walk past people at, at the plaque in the corridor, you know, taking pictures and whatnot. Uh, but it's just kind of one example of the things that, that, that kind of come out of this. And I mean, even, even now is we're, um, you know, we're, we're working on the Large Hadron Collider at the moment is, is the collider of the day, and that's where our detectors are. But we're always thinking for the future, and there are always proposals for future experiments and things. And you know, just uh, yesterday, I was speaking to uh, one of my friends who's, who's kind of worked on um, developing some of the new technology for one of these proposed experiments. And I mean, the other side of the coin for that technology that he's working on is it's being used in hospitals to develop these new hadron therapy uh, machines uh, to treat uh, people with cancer. You know, and um, so I think. To me, you know, the reason for it is is it's fundamental science. It's, it's who we are, and, and it's interesting to do in its own right. But um, there's just a, a plethora of, of other things that kind of come out of doing science and doing you know these projects on this scale. See, so hoping Adam Rennie gets put up on a plaque next to Tim Berners Lee. <laughs> well, we we'll need to see about that. I don't know. A few more podcasts before we get to that point. I think definitely. Um, what made you want to get into physics? Yeah. Um, so uh, I think I, I thought about this a few times because I, I some, you sometimes, sometimes I find myself, you know, on the balcony here and thinking, how, how did I end up? Why am I in Geneva? You know? Um, and I, I think I was always interested in science, um, but maybe I don't, I maybe didn't always know it. Like I, like when I think about kind of growing up and things like, would mess around with my dad and, and, you know, we used to make little like smoke bombs and take them to the beach and think, you know, just like kind of little silly experiments like that I used to do with my dad. I never really thought much of at the time. It was just like a fun thing to do. But I guess in hindsight, I was, I was kind of always interested. Um, but I didn't, it, it wasn't sort of the case that I always thought, oh, I, you know, I'll go and be a physicist. That's, that's my, my life's goal. Um, I think I was just just kind of followed what I found interesting at, at the time. And so, you know, when I was in school, well, I, I thought I wanted to be an author for a while. Um, and then I, I think I sort of realized that I was interested in science and then I thought I wanted to do some sort of biochemistry. And then uh, at some point in school, I was, I think I was just watching kind of TV documentaries and reading popular science and things like that. And, um, you know, you start watching Brian Cox programs and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and I just became interested. And, um, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll do a physics degree. Uh, uh, so I went to also uh, Glasgow, did my degree in Glasgow. And, um, 
And for me, yeah, again, it was just another case of kind of following what I was interested in. At some point, sort of later in, in my degree, I became more interested in um, the kind of particle physics side of things. But even then, it was actually, I was more interested in uh, the detectors and, and building the detectors and designing them. And then I, I kind of fell into this and whatnot. So, I, I mean, I think it's something that I think I've spoken to a few people here about is that it's, um, I think as, as nice as it is sometimes to hear those stories about, uh, you know, people that always knew they, were, they wanted to be, you know, this or that, and, and they followed their dream and it happened. And, and that's great. Like, you know, I, like, I think for a lot of people, you just kind of, uh, you end up where you are and it's kind of this meandering path. And yeah, I just followed what I was interested in. I think. You mentioned Brian Cox there. Would you say he's one of your science heroes or do you have any people that you, you look up to um, within your profession? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, kind of public figures, then, yeah, I mean, um, he was around the time that I was kind of growing up and was at school and things, you know, he was uh, prominent and uh, so definitely influential in that sense. Um and then there, you know, there are countless people around me that I kind of look up to just now that maybe aren't quite so so public. But it's interesting um, with the likes of Brian Cox or um, you know some other people that, that wrote many popular science books and things like that. Um, because I, I I never like I say I, it wasn't that I always thought I wanted to go and be a particle physicist and, and whatnot. But now that I've kind of ended up here, it, it so happens that it was kind of the path that some of those people followed as well. I mean, Brian, Brian Cox is still um, an author on the Atlas experiment, the same experiment I'm on. Uh, I'm, you know, out here for about two years. Um, and one of the other people that's out here at the moment is his PhD student. And, um, you know, you kind of come across some of these people as well, just that, well, not so much at conferences and things these days, but uh, usually. Um, so it's kind of funny how things end up like that as well. So it's a pretty, pretty small world in the, in the world of particle physics. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think it, it, it ends up being smaller than you would imagine because there are thousands and thousands of people working on it, but somehow you end up crossing paths with a lot of people. And, um, how do you think the work you're doing is going to shape the future? How do you think the stuff you're doing is going to impact the world? Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, I think that's a very deep and philosophical question. I'm, I'm sorry to say, but yeah, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, um, I think it's an important thing to think about though, because you obviously you want to feel like what you're doing is, is, you know, you're leaving an impact and whatnot. Um, but I think it's an especially kind of hard thing to answer when you are doing fundamental science, because, uh, you know, that, um, if it's going to be some sort of technological fallout or something like that, something that makes it its way into, the mainstream in fundamental science, there tends to be a really long lag, you know, between the the fundamental kind of understanding and then people kind of figuring out what to do with that. So I have no idea in terms of mainstream uh, impact or whatnot. You know, the hope um, as far as in my field goes is that you know you improve. I mean, really, the kind of analysis that I'm doing is is more to sort of enable future. Um, kind of searches for new particles and things like that, or, or to understand um, some of these more extreme events. Uh, and, and what the analysis I'm doing is basically allow us to do that more precisely. Um, so it's to kind of get a better understanding of some of the things that we can see just now. So that, um, you know, because one, one of the major challenges, like I say, you, you know, you take maybe a, this kind of picture of, of one of these collisions 
And uh, it's, there's a lot that's going on and you need to be able to, to pick out what the thing you're interested in is from all the other stuff that's going on. I mean, when, when I talked about um, like the data challenges, like at the LHC, um, there these protons that we collide, they go around um, and we actually, they go around in bunches and we cross the bunches uh, to collide the protons. And there are bunch crossings uh, a rate of, I think it's like 40 million bunch crossings per second. Uh, and in each of those crossings, you might have 40 collisions or something like that. Um, and, and so, you know, you need to look at the mess that is what's going on in a detector and somehow, you know, make some sense of it. Um, so that's, yeah, I guess in short, I'm hoping that what I'm, what I'm doing can help, uh, you know, subsequent researchers kind of better understand uh, what's going on. So you're trying to find a needle in a stack of needles. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. It's, um, it's a really busy environment at the, at the Large Hadron Collider. And um, you've said that you, you, you wanted to take kind of a, a more meandering path to life and let it take you where anywhere, anywhere it wants to go. But do you have any specific career goals or anything you'll look back and think, yeah, I've, I've, I've done a good job here. I've, I've, I've definitely made it. Um, I don't know if I quite think about it like that because I, I think, uh, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to put uh, pressure on myself to kind of do one thing and then be disappointed if it, if it doesn't quite work out like that, I think. Um, but I mean, I, I think I, I kind of just want to follow what I'm interested in, you know, and, um, and just now I'm really enjoying uh, doing this and I, and I hope to, to kind of continue with that. Um, it's not really an easy field to, um, to be in, 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 in a kind of job market kind of sense. Um, you know, there are, you know, 20 of 20 people like me for every job at the next level that there is and, and, and whatnot. So, you know, as much I, I would like to continue and, and, you know, if I can do that, then I think at the moment, that's what I'd like to do. If I end up, you know, not able to do that or, or change my mind at some point, then, you know, I think it's just looking at what's, what's kind of interesting. I think a, a lot of people um, doing this kind of thing, doing analysis in, in LEC experiments and whatnot, uh, go on to kind of data science and, and computing and software and, uh, things like that. There's, you know, there's a lot of kind of skills that people pick up doing this sort of thing that are really quite widely applicable, even if, uh, you know, they're no longer looking at, at top parks and expose zones and, and whatnot. Um, you've mentioned that, that obviously the LHC, LHC is, uh, is in Geneva. Um, what's it like being a Brit abroad and, um, how, how did you adjust to, to living in another country? What's your French like? Oh yeah. Okay. That's the, that's the real question. Um, it's not very good. Uh, I, there are certain, there are certain French classes, which I, uh, which I embarked on when I got here, but, uh, they've been somewhat disrupted along with everything else. So I think my, my French skills have dropped off a little bit in the last six months or so. But, um, I mean, being out here in, in general, uh, I think is, is a great experience. Um, you know, even physics aside, um, I, again, it wasn't like something that I had in mind, but, Geneva as well is just quite a unique kind of place. I mean, CERN as an environment is, is this menagerie of people from all different disciplines and, and walks of life. And, and that's fantastic. And, and, and really that's, um, that's the bread and butter of, of what goes on in CERN is, is just the kind of mixing and, and people kind of, uh, getting into, uh, 
bar one, which is the main restaurant that's served. It's kind of restaurant during the day, bar in the evening. And most people kind of, you know, whenever they get uh, kind of worn out with their day's work, everyone will kind of end up there. And that's where a lot of the, the conversations happen. And, and that kind of mixing and, and, and the sort of social aspect is really like quite important to the science. Um, and it's where a lot of the ideas come up. So, I mean, CERN as an environment is, is great for that. And then Geneva is like another layer to that all over again, because there are all these international organizations, people coming from all over the world. Um, you know, I, I grew up in, in Dundee on the Northeast coast of Scotland. And, um, I, it's quite a far cry from Geneva, you know, um, the kind of people that you meet and stories that you hear in, in Dundee are a little bit different to, um, to what you kind of come across in Geneva. Um, but it, it's really quite an enriching experience. I think, I think it makes you aware of, of, of other things as well. Um, just uh, things that you maybe never really would have thought of, you know, so when I'm thinking about um, the future and, and, oh, maybe if I don't uh, do physics, then, you know, now I know about these five other organizations that are doing really cool things, or I met this guy at this party that said that, you know, his job was like this. And, and so it's, it's, yeah, I, I really, really enjoy it. I'm hoping to um, to stay here for sort of as long as I can. It's not an opportunity that uh, that all you know comes along all that often. I think. Imagine the uh, CERN Christmas do is uh, pretty wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you say that you'd be surprised. You know, uh, people have this idea. I think many of scientists and physicists, as, uh, I don't know, we kind of tame and whatever. But I, I, I think that's um, one of the things that was kind of surprising to me the first time I came to CERN. Um, was uh, I think I had the same kind of image as maybe a lot of people do, where I envisioned this very glamorous kind of uh, pristine um, high tech lab kind of thing, and um, and actually, you know, most of it's the offices and things are, are from the six days, and all the money is underground in the machines and whatnot, and and everyone's just more or less a normal person that just likes to you know, do their work and then, uh, end up in the pub at the end of the day. And, uh, yeah. So does it require a certain sort of person to go and, and work in this kind of place? You've mentioned it's underground, but I don't think you've quite mentioned how far underground it is. You know, are you a claustrophobic person or is it something you've had to deal with? Uh, I mean, not really. Um, I, I think if you're doing something like me where you're, uh, you're analyzing the data, if you don't want to go and see the experiment, you don't have to. You can you can stay uh, uh, sitting at your computer and, and, and you'll be fine. But I think that's to miss something because, like you say, I mean, it's like a hundred meters underground in this massive cavern. Um, it's really quite special. Um, you know, you, you come down into this massive, uh, yeah, thing that's been dug out of of this uh, of the ground beneath France and Switzerland and. Um, and you're in this massive cavern, but you're still somehow kind of pressed against the wall, trying to work around this uh, massive uh, machine. And I think, you know, it, it was one of my favorite things to do um, before everything kind of got disrupted was to, to do tours and, and to take people down and, and show them um, just for that moment. There's a, there's a the route that you kind of take them. There's a very specific moment where you kind of turn the corner and there is the Atlas experiment in front of you. And I, I always make sure that I'm first around that corner so that I can move back and see people, you know, kind of come around and, uh, and usually kind of gawk at the, at the side of it. And I, I still do it um, myself. And I, you know, recently I've been able to go down a little bit more. Um, I've sort of become the, um, 
coordinator for the UK's kind of virtual visits uh, program. So we've uh, started doing, yeah, kind of almost like live streams from the cavern. And, and that's been really good to do that again. And I think it's a really good um, way for people to, to kind of engage even amongst all the disruption. And, and, and even for people who might not necessarily, you know, even in normal times, get a chance to come uh, actually to Geneva and go and see the thing for real, you know. Um, yeah. So I'm guessing you don't need your passport to, to, to cross over from, from Switzerland to France when you're underground. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I've ever gone under the border in the tunnels. Uh, it's an interesting, yeah. Because it's pretty, it's pretty, a pretty long walk, isn't it? If you're going to walk the whole way around. (laughs) Yeah, it's 27 kilometers around. So I, I always think about it in terms of the. uh, This is kind of a localized reference, but I always think about it in terms of the Glasgow subway, because the Glasgow subway is also a big circle, but it's like 10 kilometers around or something like that. So. Uh, so a yeah, few trips if you need to yeah. if you want to test it out um i like to do a little bit uh, with my guests where i ask them for for their three tips tim's three tips um obviously you're an esteemed scientist um known for creating hypotheses and being able to make you know good conclusions um so it'd be great if you could give us three tips on how someone could create a more informed opinion uh, especially when they're online um in this era of kind of fake news what 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 can they do to avoid getting sucked in by fake news <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's an interesting it's an interesting question i think that the um i mean really you can just approach it i think almost as you would any problem in a, in a kind of scientific uh, manner. Um, so I think, I mean, the scientific method is in a, in a kind of vague way, you know, people talk about, um, you know, you, you make some observation and, and then um, form a hypothesis to explain that observation and, and from your hypothesis get some prediction that you can then devise an experiment to test your prediction and, and kind of repeat that uh, for a while until you arrive at some something that um, satisfies you. And, and I think you could apply some of those kind of same broad principles uh, to any kind of uh, situation where you might be, need to be skeptical about something. Um, so if I was if I was to boil it down into kind of three points or three tips on that sort of thing, I think one, it's important to know what you know. Um, so uh, in, in the same way as if you're approaching a scientific problem, you know, you need to first you know look at what's in front of you and, and gather your evidence and decide what the things are that you know that you can build on. Um, so I think that's the first thing. The second thing is to know what you don't know. Um, and I think that's something that uh, is equally important. Uh, and, it, and certainly in science, uh, you know, is, is everywhere. And, and even in the measurements that, you know, we do, we have to quantify exactly how much we don't know the things that we don't know and, and, um, and build that into the, the kind of statements that we're about to make. So, yes, I think the second thing is, is know what you don't know. Um, and the third thing is, as is always the case in science, is that you have to be prepared to be wrong. <laughs> and I think that um, maybe, I think in a lot of kind of discourse, especially that happens kind of online and, and whatnot in, in this kind of post-truth era um that's maybe something that uh, a lot of people could could take to heart a bit more is, is be prepared to be wrong i think it's it's often very black and white and, and whatnot um but yeah i think if i was to boil, boil it down to three steps i'd say know what you know 
know what you don't know and, and be prepared to be wrong about it. Yeah. I mean, if I could chip one in there as well, know your source, know where it's come from. That's the, that's the good one, isn't it? If it's from Deirdre up the road, who said it on Facebook, it's probably not as yeah. likely to be right as the BBC, is it? Yeah. I mean, it's one of my, um, obviously there's misinformation about all sorts of things online being in some way associated with uh, CERN. There's quite a lot that kind of people have some quite interesting ideas about what really goes on at CERN and, uh, it's, it's sometimes it can be quite entertaining the, um, the things that, you know, people have said. I mean, while some of these myths, I can imagine a lot of people get it wrong in terms of they're worried it, you know, it might explode and cause some massive natural disaster, but it, it, it can't really, can it? Uh, no, um, I mean, it did explode. That's what people uh, forget is that when it, when it first got turned on, it, it did literally explode and we're all still here. Um, it, it was kind of annoying to the physicists, but I don't think that there were sort of more global repercussions than that. Um so, I mean, that was the big one was around turning it on because I, I was still in school when that happened. And I remember, you know, the tabloids and things about how it was going to swallow swallow the earth and whatnot. Um, but there are all sorts of conspiracies. And, um, yeah, they're quite interesting. Even uh, uh, I, my mom sent me a message one day about something that my uncle had been telling her about what really goes on at CERN. And I, I find that quite entertaining because I was kind of thinking, does he think that I'm in on it? Or does he think, you know... I, I don't know. The earth's flat, I'm just telling you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned you do these virtual tours. Is What kind of other ways do you get involved with getting people, you know, especially young people into STEM and getting them excited about science? Yeah, so, I mean, um, I think the virtual visits is a really good thing just now because it's um, the, a lot of the more kind of conventional routes are, are kind of closed off. Um, but in, in more kind of normal times, um, Back in Glasgow, I mean, we have um, these master classes that we put on for uh, school high school students to come um, and and kind of you know they'll they'll learn a bit about particle physics and CERN and, and whatnot in general, but then they'll get a chance to sit down and actually go through some real data and do some analysis of their own and see if they can find things. And then you know sometimes we'll go into schools and and, um, and talk to to students there. And go to science festivals. Um, so we actually did. Uh, it's maybe we haven't been impacted as part of physicists by the kind of online world uh, in as much as some people have. We're very used to doing kind of virtual meetings and things like that. And we did um, about this time last year to um, the Institute of Physics um, did a festival of physics in, in Edinburgh. And so we had a kind of live link from CERN to you know, talk to a, a particle physicist. Um, so I think. You know, there's there's a kind of variety of ways that we um, kind of try and, and get involved like that. Uh, the virtual visits is a good one. Um, I think that they're you know super uh, super useful and and I think great just now, like because of all the disruption and whatnot. But even in, in normal times, you know, it's not every um, every school physics class that can can take a trip to a trip to Geneva. Um, so I think it's a good way to kind of. Yeah, I, I think it's important to be able to reach into those uh, kind of classrooms that might not always have the same opportunities. So what sort of advice would you give someone who is, you know, thinking about going to university um, to do a STEM career? What, what kind of advice would you give them um, to go and do that? Uh, I mean, as far as a, a kind of a career is concerned, I think it's like it, it is to just get involved. Um you know, if you're going to university to do a degree in um, 
in a STEM subject, um, then to an extent, you know, you'll be kind of exposed to the whatever it might be that you're studying and you'll have your lectures and, and I guess maybe some labs and things depending on what it is you're studying. But it's, it, it, it is quite different from um, really being uh, involved in, in that science. And that, and that was what I found um, when I kind of finished my degree and, and started the PhD and actually doing the research. Because I, I wasn't someone who was particularly involved um, kind of during my degree. And, and, and from speaking to other people uh, kind of around me also doing PhDs or, or, or further on, and when they talk about some of the things that they were able to get involved with during their degree, you know, I think, well, that first it sounds, you know, like really good fun and a really good way to kind of engage with your subject. But it meant that they were kind of just aware of, um, of you know, the opportunities and, and not just the opportunities, but it's about kind of what you're interested in. And um, in the same way as it's important, you know, know what you know and know what you don't know, um, in as much as it's important to know what you're interested in, it's important to know what you're not interested in as well, you know. Um, so I think that, you know, just talking to people, you know, knock on someone's door and, and um, ask what they do. And, and if you're looking, you know, to do things over the summer or whatnot, then, you know, ask around. Because um, I think that's something that I didn't always kind of realize was was happening around me um, and maybe could have made more use of. And I'm sure it would have been useful to me. It's by no means, you know, the only way to, to kind of, uh, go forward, but it's certainly um, a good way to kind of become more aware of, of these things. You've mentioned you're um, in the middle of your PhD. Uh, h- how's that going for you? <laughs> That's the million dollar question. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it's going. Uh, <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm still enjoying it. Um, it. It's it's definitely been a bit different the last kind of nine months or so. Um, you know, doing a PhD uh, on you know, one of these experiments like Atlas is, uh, the PhD students are often kind of the workhorse of the experiment. You know, they're, they're a huge number of them and, and they're often doing a lot of the work. So you're, you're, you're work, as much as you're working on this experiment, it's also obviously your kind of training period. Uh, and so obviously you kind of suffer a little bit from the lack of, of these interactions with your supervisors and peers and things that you might ordinarily have. And it's, uh, you don't have the same kind of informal chats or, uh, opportunities to ask the stupid questions uh, as, uh, as you might do in, in normal times. But, um, but no, I'm still, still really enjoying it. I mean, it's still, it's, I'm here because I was interested in it basically uh, and I'm still interested in it. So. Amazing. I've, I've, I've got one kind of more question for you. Uh, I like to describe this podcast as, as the virtual careers fair. It's, it's a way for people to speak to and, and hear from loads of really different and interesting people. Um, if you were at my careers fair on a stall, how would you pitch your job that you're doing now? You know, very quickly. Uh, I'd say come and uh, figure out the most fundamental aspects of the universe whilst uh, going skiing on the weekends and, uh, you know, in- engaging with uh, all these people and all of this French and Swiss wine. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's the, that's the kind of key thing for me is the, like I said, it's a very kind of social endeavor as well. So you get to meet these, some of the most uh, kind of interesting people that I think that I've met anywhere uh, before also whilst kind of pursuing this really, compelling uh, uh kind of pursuit yeah pursuing the pursuit um but this endeavor to kind of understand these these 
fundamental uh, aspects of yeah of the universe and and participate in um, and be a part of this kind of long legacy of uh, standing science that exists at CERN and not just at CERN but the institutes that are kind of involved uh, at CERN. Adam, it's been an absolute delight to have you to you on today. Um, where can people find out more about your work and where can they find you online if they want to? Uh, Twitter is probably the best place. Adam Rennie on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, if anyone, yeah, if anyone fancies uh, a virtual visit of, of Atlas, then, uh, you know, by all means, just search Atlas virtual visit and we'll be able to sort that out. Fantastic. Adam Rennie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Good luck with your PhD. Uh, stay <laughs> safe and I look forward to reading your work in the future. <laughs> well, yeah, well, thanks very much for, uh, for reaching out. I really enjoyed it. Who would have thought that tiny near invisible particles could unlock the secrets of the universe and that the internet as we know it was invented by a bored Brit working in a back office at CERN? A massive thank you to Adam for his time and for taking us through his interesting world of subatomic madness. As he mentioned, if you want to find out more about his work, feel free to check him out on his Twitter at Adam Rennie. Can you believe it's our 10th episode? Well, I have no plans for stopping quite yet with lots of interesting guests lined up over the next few weeks. If you're enjoying the show so far, why not consider subscribing? That little button offers you the chance to expand your knowledge of lots of interesting professions. Plus, it makes our show look great and potentially opens us up to even more people. So if you fancy it, give it a click now. If you want to get in touch, why not drop us an email? It's jobhunterpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you prefer, check out our socials. They're all at jobhunterpod on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thanks again for listening. I hope you're having a great 2021 and we'll see you next time on the Job Hunter Podcast. <laughs>